0: Today on Studio 360...
1: I wanted to make a feminist film that had a missing girl at its center.
0: How one director deals with the beautiful dead girl trope.
1: Certainly, I want this film to be a kind of battle cry
0: for young people. Why Jennifer Reader's Knives and Skin is being called a contemporary heather's. Plus, a new novel about sex and suburbia seems to be on the way to becoming another instant bestseller. The big 1960s erotic novel, but it is not all it seems to be, that turned out to be a great prank.
2: What came out of it was a plan for writing the worst bestseller in the world.
0: (laughs) One of the greatest literary hoaxes ever. That's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken please. Very well done. Editing is all
3: about timing.
2: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice,
1: right? Studio 360.
0: It's Kurt Anderson. If you don't know the work of the film director Jennifer Reeder, a good way to get a sense of her sensibility is watching one of her earliest short films.
4: A while back, in a time not so far from this time, there was a girl, a real young girl named Cherry. Now, Cherry had an uncle, Bruce. Bruce. He was a funny uncle, if you know what I mean. It's called
0: White Trash Girl. The story, with a voiceover by the director herself, of an unwanted inbred infant who's flushed down the toilet but survives.
4: Cherry's baby wiggled around in the sewer sludge for months. The ooze fed and nourished the baby. It made the baby strong. Real strong. I mean super strong her tiny baby body was becoming more toxic with every tiny baby breath and every tiny baby heartbeat. This little ball of nothing nice was turbocharged.
0: Living in that cesspool incubator gave the kid a superpower, toxic body fluids she can spew at bad men.
4: Now our angel is all grown up and she's waging biological warfare on any dumb fuck who asks for it. Why Trash Girl is Built for Speed. She waits tables by day, raises hell all night.
0: Jennifer Reeder made her superhero the protagonist of three short comic bookish films in 1995, work that got her an MFA from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago.
1: She was born very much out of a third wave Riot Girl feminism that celebrated DIY. It definitely had that kind of spirit, that urgency.
0: After White Trash Girl, Jennifer Reeder built a career out of making short films for the art house circuit. So far, nearly 50 in 25 years, all punkish feminist stories about the lives of complicated women and girls.
1: It's because I am writing oftentimes from my own experiences and observations. But I look around at what is offered to girls and women in terms of media, whether it's Advertising images or television and film, there's lots and lots of, of content about girls and women that in my estimation just isn't very authentic. And so even though my films are very particular and they have a kind of art house appeal more so than a mainstream appeal, I'm trying to fill in that
0: authenticity gap. She's now transplanted that basic M.O. into a feature film called Knives and Skin, which stars an ensemble cast of theater actors from her hometown, Chicago. It's the first feature. She's both written and directed. And it's this semi-surreal exploration of teenage suburban life that people are calling the 21st century Heathers. I call it
1: a Midwestern Gothic teen noir It's the story of a small Midwestern town where right from the get-go, a teenage girl goes missing.
2: If you find something, stay with it and yell something as loudly as you can. If you find Carolyn, stay with her. If she's okay, yell, I need the knife as loudly as you can. If she's not okay, yell, give me some skin as loudly as you can. If you get lost or separated or just feel like you need some help, yell, girls just want to have fun.
1: It's a teen film that borrows from various genres. It's kind of a horror and not. It's kind of a thriller and not. It's kind of a musical and not. Certainly, I want this film to be a kind of battle cry for young people.
0: Right. Well, and, and I was struck in this film that unlike uh, the way teenage girls are so often portrayed in film and on television uh, as these super precocious mini adults, uh, these, these kids are kids.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, even though the the film itself is, is hyper stylized between the dialogue, the performances, the lighting, the art direction, I meant for the whole film to feel... Feel as though it's hovering just above reality. Mm -hmm. But I wanted the audience to feel seen and to feel heard and to feel connected to these young women and their stories and to feel validated in their own sense of a kind of daily survival. So part of how I think of this film as being, you know, kind of genre borrowing in terms of specifically horror. Is that sense of the teen girls' everyday fight for survival among peers or adults who just are hell-bent on making kind of one awful mistake after the other that does have impact on these young women? There's something about that everyday horror that I wanted to portray. If you need some
5: extra money, you could probably sell my meds to your friends at school. I'm making good money on my own. How? I
6: sell underwear.
4: Fancy stuff? Used. Yours?
5: No. Yours.
2: Do you wash them?
5: No. Nobody wants to buy clean underwear. Who buys dirty underwear? Builders, bankers, lawyers, doctors, dads, my history teacher.
0: And somehow the fact that it's teenagers, to me, makes sense that there's all these magical realist gestures like a woman's uh, Shirt with a tiger on it. The tiger speaks to her suddenly, and eyeglasses glow, and 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 wounds shine electric red. So that's what you mean by hovering above reality, which is not fully unreal, but but glimpses of unreality.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I've used those elements of magical realism in my shorts, so I knew they could work. So when I started writing knives and skin, I didn't want to make a film that didn't include these these elements that suggested that there is something very magical, for instance, about small town America. And more so than that, there's something super powerful about teenage girls. So that's also why, you know, there's this sort of parallel universe in the knives and skin world, which suggests that there are places of synchronicity and harmony and utter beauty that is the flip side of what these young people are actually experiencing on a daily basis.
0: And speaking of that kind of uncanny synchronicity, you've got these moments uh, through the whole film where where the teenage girls sing suddenly choral arrangements of, of pop songs like Our Lips Are Sealed by the Go-Go's. It doesn't matter
5: what they say In the jealous games
2: people play.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the singing moments, and especially these these pop songs that get slowed down, like lullabies, lamentations, maybe perhaps even eulogies... The the 80s part is part of my autobiography. You know, those are songs that I loved and most certainly put on mixtapes when I was a teenager. So I get to inject this film with some of my autobiography. But then a song like Our Lips Are Sealed, which is an infectious pop song, you know, you're rolling down the windows and singing to it. But in the rearrangement as it exists in Knives and Skin, it's really a song about solidarity and empowerment.
0: So when people come on, I I like to ask them who their creative influences are. And you told us in advance that one of yours is David Lynch, which made total sense. But tell me more how you connected originally to, to Lynch's work.
1: I saw Blue Velvet when it first came out.
0: Which is his great weird 1986 movie with Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini and Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern.
6: Sneak into her apartment. Are you crazy?
7: Jeffrey, she's possibly involved in murder. This is giving me the craves. No,
2: just settle down. I have a plan, which I think will work. There's very little for you to do,
7: but I do need your help.
1: Exactly. I mean, there was something really special about the idea he presented that small-town America held the portals to the fourth dimension, and he pays attention to to art direction in in a really extraordinary way. I mean, he was an art school kid as well. So color and texture are deeply important to him. I certainly think my films have a more diverse, there's more diversity in my small town. And I think I try to bring a kind of feminist or even sort of feminine sensibility to my films that I'm not so sure he's,
0: he's all that interested in. Another big influence on your list is Lynne Ramsey, a Scottish director whose only movie I've seen, I think, is We Need to Talk About Kevin with Tilda Swinton. But the movie on your list is Morvern Caller, which, which came out in 2002. What is Morvern Collar and, and why do you like it so much?
1: So Morvern Collar, it's based on, a I believe, a short story, um, it's a central character, a woman who, uh, I'm not spoiling anything because this happens right at the beginning, whose, whose boyfriend has uh, killed himself. And then in the entire rest of the film, her both confusion over his death and her grief and her response, her coping response to the trauma is so unexpected and so remarkable. He's gone. He's left me.
5: Oh, he's probably just the money he's made. It's
7: not.
2: It's really gone. It's never coming back. Gone where? I don't
1: know. To another country? Another country? You don't mean any sense. I don't know what you're talking about. She is a female character who's so resistant and at times so unlikable. I mean, she's a very difficult... Woman And both cinematically and in real life, I'm completely drawn to difficult, complicated women. And so Morven Collar is this really astonishing, you know, character portrait of a woman in crisis, but it's deeply unexpected. There's no moment where she falls to her knees wailing, you know, as so many, you know, sort of grieving women do in films.
0: Um, Another of the filmmakers on your list uh, is the the Belgian director Chantal Ackerman, um, and in particular, one of her early films from uh, 1975 called Jean Dillemin. Uh, and then an address in French in Brussels that I'm not going to pretend to pronounce. Um, <laughs> it is an extremely deadpan portrait of of the domestic life of a woman, right?
1: Oh man, she's like she she really is like the original difficult, resistant mother, and that's a film that I saw very early on and was just astonished by. The pacing, for instance, you know, the, the meatloaf scene, which I cite and which I kind of pay homage to in in Knives and Skin, mine is quite different.
0: The character, you see her making a meatloaf, and it's not just like for 30 seconds. You, you see her making a meatloaf. Oh,
1: yeah, it's in real time. It's extraordinary. I mean, imagine that having to talk to to explain to your producers that you need to use that entire something like three and a half minute real-time shot of her making a meatloaf so meticulously with the sound of the meat. It's a beautiful visceral scene with so much uh, pathos mm-hmm. and the sense of tension that's built up through that pacing and through these daily domestic activities in a similar way as Lynn Ramsey's Morvern Caller. It's this very intense, very specific kind of portrait study of a woman unraveling, really. And it's so unexpected.
0: Your last influence that we have here is not a movie or a movie maker. It's it's the American fine art photographer Francesca Woodman.
1: I saw her work for the first time when I was in high school, which was a long time after she had died. And those beautiful, quivering self-portraits of a woman both willing herself into a space and disappearing into the space, vibrating in her environment or vibrating her environment. They were just astonishing. i had never seen self-portraiture like that. And it didn't take much research after seeing the first image to understand that she had many years prior to that first time of seeing any of her photographs had killed herself at the age of 22, which like gutted me, you know. So realizing that you had this very young woman who made these extremely powerful, impactful self-portraits in a very short period of time, potentially all this kind of language leading up to her suicide. It's as though those photographs are like a long term visual suicide note. Right.
0: And just to, so people are clear, they're black and white. Uh, there mm-hmm. are a kind of degraded or messed up uh, rooms and backgrounds. Um, she's often nude. Uh, no, I hear you. And as you've just said it, it's almost like they're stills from a film that would end with her death by her own hand.
1: Yes, absolutely. She used this a kind of a large format camera and she would use these long exposures. So uh-huh. her image and the images of the other female models in the photographs are often blurred because they're moving. I mean, she made kind of ghostly images, but she, she is a ghost. And so, you know, when I was making Knives and Skin, I wanted to make a feminist film that had a missing girl at its center, so the trope of so many horror films is the missing girl or the dead girl. And that's a problem for a feminist filmmaker. But I wanted to take on that as an emblem or an icon, this kind of body of, of the girl. And so I thought a lot and looked back over all of Francesca Woodman's work to really
0: kind of call on the spirit of those photographs and the way we've talked about your work and your inspirations in this film could lead listeners to believe, oh, it's, that's going to be a bummer. Well, in fact, I, I I finished the film thinking, oh, no, it's I, I won't say a happy ending, but kind of. <laughs> absolutely i didn't want to make a film
1: that has so much darkness in it um and leave an audience with no hope there's hope at the end and understanding that coming of age is a lifelong process and there's never you know no one is beyond redemption and there's a time there's 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 a time and place for everyone to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and move on from those mistakes so everyone in this film has made a mistake or has confronted a burden and we understand that that even the most problematic of the characters in this film has turned a corner to make their life more stable and more meaningful.
0: Uh, Jennifer Reeder, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I really wish you the best of luck with this film.
1: Uh, Kurt, it was really great talking to you, too. Thank you so much for taking time.
0: Jennifer Reeder's latest film is called Knives and Skin. It's in select theaters, and it's streaming as well. Coming up, how did erotica this preposterous?
5: Together, like garden snakes, they contorted, moaned, gasped, clenched, and throbbed.
0: End up on the New York Times bestseller list. That story's just ahead on Studio 360 right after this. next one's a bit PG, so parents of young kids, consider yourself warned. Back in the 1960s, as the sexual revolution ramped up, a lot of Americans also started going for more frank depictions of sex, especially in fiction, in novels. The legal ban on sexually explicit books, like Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, ended in 1964. Soon, other A-list literary writers, like John Updike, were going there. But even more, publishers of very commercial fiction cranked up the new smut machine and churned out trashy sexual romps that became huge bestsellers, such as Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne
5: she felt herself responding to his embrace with an ardor she had never dreamed she possessed her mouth demanding more and more
0: and the adventurers by harold robbins her mouth was warm and
7: moist and still tasted of orange soda and his lips were traveling down her body over her breasts
0: which was great if you were 11 or 12 and finding these paperbacks on your parents bedside tables But the literary mandarins were appalled. In 1966, Lewis Nichols, uh, writing in the New York Times about that year's bestsellers, said that, quote, seldom has there been so wretched a collection of titles as appears today. But the greatest example of wretched erotica, truly laughably bad, came along a couple of years later. And how it came along is itself like a comic novel. Studio 360. Sam Kim has the story.
3: It all started in 1966 in this bar in Garden City, Long Island, called The Sulky.
8: Which was a place where you could listen to music, have a drink, dance.
3: That's Marilyn Berger. She was the diplomatic correspondent at Newsday, the daily newspaper of Long Island. Back then, many of her co-workers would retire each night to The Sulky,
7: including a 33-year-old columnist named Mike McGrady. Gin mills that year were filled with writers anesthetizing themselves against the harsh new realities of their profession. McGrady died in 2012. In 1970, he wrote a memoir about this period, read here by actor Greg Tannen. To be a serious writer in the year 1966 was also to be a serious drinker.
9: They had a piano bar, you know, and there were some attractive women who hung out there. That's Harvey Aronson. He
3: was a columnist at Newsday.
9: I remember once I drank champagne out of a secretary's shoe and um, told everybody that I was getting um, athlete's foot of the mouth.
3: And they'd be up drinking in this place. George Vesey was Newsday's sports reporter. And then people would talk and all the the hair was let down. And they were
2: discussing the, the status of American literature.
3: That's Tony Insolia. He was the editor for Newsday for over 30 years. Stanley Green was the day news editor.
0: Mike used to complain about uh, books like uh, Harold
7: Robbins and uh, Jackie Suzanne. I was appalled by the kind of books making enormous successes. Look at the garbage that gets printed.
3: That's when the idea hit him. McGrady thought Suzanne's and Robbins' books were schlock, but they were selling millions of copies. So what if you actually tried to write a preposterously bad erotic novel? Would it be...
7: Just as successful? Everyone at Newsday could do one chapter. We would each write about one specific perversion, and we put them all together. We could write the whole thing in a week. And what came out of it was a uh, plan
2: for a uh, writing the worst bestseller in the world. <laughs>
9: he said, we'll make a lot of money. I said, we're not going to make any money. But I thought we'd have a lot of fun.
3: So McGrady got home from the bar that night, poured himself a nightcap, and
7: typed a memo to his co-workers. You are hereby officially invited to become the co-author of a best-selling novel. There will be an unremitting emphasis on sex. Also, true excellence in writing will be quickly blue-penciled into oblivion. He then typed out a plot outline that would connect all the disparate sex scenes. Each chapter will involve Miss Jillian Blake, homewrecker. As the book opens, she learns that her husband William has been conducting an affair. She is unfaithful at first to even the score. She is unfaithful for a while because she enjoys it. She is unfaithful finally because she makes it a goal to destroy the seemingly happy marriages that surround her.
3: The next day, McGrady circulated the memo in the Newsday office. I came in late at night and I found a note in my mailbox. George Vesey took the memo home. He decided to write his chapter while he was supposed to be doing yard work. So
9: yeah, mowers would have been on my mind. And I... uh, You know, I typed it out in half an hour.
5: Morton Earbrow found himself staring. Staring hard at her slim, exciting face. Then staring hard at her slim, exciting body. Her arms were slim and exciting, too. The mower is in the garage, she said. She had removed the belt to his Bermuda shorts, and then, without words, they merged. In the dark, in the cool darkness, they communicated.
3: I remember using the word
9: communicated a lot, which is kind of a stupid word for for making love, but that's, that's what I was up to.
5: Faster and faster they communicated, harder and harder. Fingers and nails on skin, teeth on skin, then great shudders of total communication. They came apart and rested in the dark. He said... I'd forgotten there was more to life than mowing the lawn.
3: Three weeks later, a total of 24 Newsday writers, 20 men and four women, sent in a chapter. A few of the submissions were
7: poetic, sophisticated, intelligent. In other words, unacceptable. Some of the chapters were much too good, and I had to work like hell to make them bad enough to use.
9: You know, it's not easy to write bad.
7: McGrady
3: enlisted one of the writers, Harvey Aronson, to share editing duties.
9: To really write bad is
3: hard, and some of it was just
9: moderately stupid.
3: Together, they downgraded the prose, combined some of the chapters, cut a few submissions. And one chapter that got the axe was Marilyn Berger's.
8: I didn't make the cut. And my sister said, well, it was obviously too well written. And my mother said, it wasn't sexy enough. I think that may be the first time I heard my mother say sexy.
3: A couple days before I talked to Marilyn, I went to the archives at Columbia University. That's where Mike McGrady donated many of the documents from his career. I made copies of some of the unused chapters from the book. Do you still have your chapter, by the way?
8: No, I was gonna ask you if you had it.
3: You know what, I have uh, some of it and- Can I see it? So I handed her a copy. And for the first time in over 50 years, she read her submission that was cut from the manuscript.
5: She pressed her body against his, kissing first his fingers, then his arm, his chest, his mouth. They orchestrated a rhythm that he had once said was composed of everything they both had ever known. Of surf and swaying trees, of crowded traffic and musty rooms, of sweet flowers and moonlight, of life itself.
8: (laughs) (laughs) What did you think when you read that? I'm amazed. Yeah. I was pretty—no, I wasn't so naive then, I was just sort of younger. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember a word of it, and I am so happy you've come up with a copy.
3: Meanwhile, for the submissions that did make the cut, Mike and Harvey were working to cobble them together to make them seem like they were all written by one person. So Mike invented a collective pseudonym for all the writers—Penelope Ash. Penelope Ash, as he described to his co-conspirators, was a demure Long Island housewife. And for the title, the Newsday writers scanned through a list of bestsellers and found that the words stranger and naked were frequently used. So they combined the two together to create the title for their opus. Naked came the stranger. There were 14 chapters in the manuscript. One was by a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, Robert Greene.
5: She stepped out of the dress. She was wearing no bra. Pink white peaks rising from the residue of her tan.
3: Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, Jean Golds.
5: And they reached for each other and found pleasure in gentle caresses. Then faster, quicker, faster, needful. Willoughby was lost in immense billowy softness and riotous colors and roaring winds. He was the sand and the sea and the star pierced sky.
3: When I asked the writers to name their favorite chapter in the book, it was unanimous. I think that John Cummings' chapter is the funniest. John Cummings, who died in 2016, was an investigative
9: reporter at Newsday. He claimed that when he was a young man in the Marines, he had an adventure with a woman in the Philippines who was a hooker, and that at the climactic moment of their Involvement Pressed an ice cube Up his rear end And he wrote this line Which is in the book You can find it exactly And then
5: Ernie felt it She shoved the ice in The big rock candy mountain Together, like garden snakes They contorted, moaned Gasped, clenched, and throbbed Ernie found what Cervantes and Milton had only sought He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt.
7: The imagery was absurd. The perversions were plentiful. It was then that I began to sense that it was going to work. It was actually going to work. It's true. They did succeed in the first part of their plan. They
3: wrote a genuinely terrible novel. But what self-respecting book publisher would actually published this.
9: I'm a book publisher and proud of it. Yeah, I influenced an entire generation.
3: That's Lyle Stewart speaking in 2005. In the late 60s, he was known for publishing controversial, sexually explicit books like The Art of Erotic Seduction. Mike had previously written about him for a Newsday article. He broached the idea to Lyle
9: Stewart. When Mike told him it was going to be put on, he thought that was great. So we needed somebody to front for the book.
7: There was the name, Penelope Ash. We needed a woman who might fit the name. They decided on Mike's sister-in-law, a 38-year-old writer named Billy Young.
3: After weeks of trying to track her down, Hello? Hi, Billy. How are you? She agreed to talk on the phone.
2: Well, actually, Mike had talked to me about it uh, for a while, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful plans I'd ever heard, because I was always impressed with what Orson Welles had done with War of the Worlds, And this was just as good a spoof in my mind.
9: So she went to Lyle Stewart, and he loved her. He thought she'd be great as a friend for the book. So that was it, and he said he would publish it. So
3: three years after it was just an offhand comment at the sulky bar, the book was finally published. For the cover, Lyle Stewart used the stock photo of a kneeling naked woman. And for the author photo, they used a picture of Billy Young. The plan was for Billy to appear on television and radio posing as Penelope Ash. But before she did, Mike and Harvey prepped her for the interviews.
9: So we went to Billy's home and she said, you know, what should she do? What can she say? And I remember saying to her, tell them that virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. She said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't have the faintest idea, but it sounds great.
2: I went into um, Neven markets and I bought a couple of very sexy outfits and suits. And it was, you know, a little more flamboyant than I would personally wear, but it, went, but it was for a role. And that's what I wore to the in interviews. Penelope Ash, the author. I think this is what the public is buying today, sex.
9: A Couple months later, I'm on my patio I hear her being interviewed on a radio show. Oh, well, you know, virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. I just laid on the ground on the stone patio and just beat my hand on the ground.
2: I knew I could carry it off, but when it came to fruition, the only emotion that I could tell you that I felt, scared. And it was frightening that the whole world knew me now. In those years, I was pretty shy, and that was what cured me. You take the shyest person and you do that a couple of times and the shyness can be cured. I'm a living example.
9: Across the country, the book sold between twenty and 30,000 copies so far. And they're still going in some areas like hotcakes.
0: Uh, the New York Times printed
2: a uh, one-paragraph dismissive review,
6: unaware that it was a spoof. It would be nice if this book could be judged by its cover, which is easily the best part. In the category of erotic fantasy, this one rates about
3: a C. So the hoax seemed to be fooling everyone, and McGrady and the other writers were in no hurry to disabuse the notion that Penelope Ash and the book were real. But then...
2: Somebody uh, tipped off uh, a
9: reporter
3: for the Wall Street
9: Journal. And so they were asked, please keep it secret, because we wanted to see how high it would go.
3: Robert Mayer was a columnist at Newsday. He co-wrote one of
9: the chapters was adamant. They said they weren't going to hold that They knew enough about it to go with the story. And right after that, all over the world, I mean, it was insane. Newspapers all across the United States jumped on it. It just went wild. Back in 1966, here at the offices of Newsday, 25 young writers got together and perpetrated a gigantic hoax.
3: Naked Came the Stranger was supposed to have been written by a first-time authorist trying her best. Instead, it turns out it was written by a bunch of other people trying to do their worst.
8: I was sent off to Paris to cover the Vietnam Peace Talks. And I opened up the International Herald Tribune while I was waiting for the press conference to begin. And there it was, Naked Came the Stranger, the spoof of the century.
9: Walter Cronkite sent a, a helicopter that landed on the lawn across the street from uh, Newsday's office. And Mike and I and a friend named Lou Schwartz were in the helicopter. I don't know how Lou got in there, but he was in the helicopter with us and they flew us to New York.
3: A new novel about sex in suburbia was published this week. It seems to be on the way to becoming another instant bestseller. But it is not all it seems to be. It says Jacqueline Suzanne move over. You got to move way over to make room for 24 men, and that's the
9: way it is. Wednesday, August 6, 1969. And I remember looking down at New York City, and Lou Schwartz said, "It's all yours. The city is all yours." <laughs> and on September 1969,
3: the real Penelope Ash made her first national televised appearance on the David Frost show. Will you now be? The authoress of Naked Came the Stranger, Penelope
2: Ash. They parted the drapes and one after another, I think about nineteen of us were there. Uh, we walked through as the author, Penelope Ash. That was was a fun a fun night.
9: We got a lot of applause, and Billy came in wandering around the stage with her Russian wolfhound.
2: Why did I bring the dog I don't have
9: an idea maybe I took her course I was so too scared David Frost told us afterwards that he was scared um shitless uh, that the Wolfhound was going to have an accident during the program a month
3: later, the book had sold over ninety thousand copies. It gradually crept up the New York Times bestseller list, reaching number three just behind the Love Machine by none other than Jacqueline Suzanne in other words. The book that was parodying Suzanne was now rivaling her in sales. Mike and Harvey soon got a call. It was Bernard Geis, the man who published
9: Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. He called us to his office. He said, you guys write a sequel. You're gonna make a million dollars. And Mike and I looked at each other and we both said, no. We did it once, I wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna do it again.
3: Harvey left Newsday to write for New York Magazine. He's proud of his role
9: in Naked Came to Stranger, not without reservations, I hope that when I go to the great beyond, that is not the defining clause in the first um paragraph. I mean, it can be in the it can be in the obit, but I don't want it in the first
3: paragraph. Robert Mayer was just as conflicted. after all, the hoax had proved that the standards of readers were even lower than what Mike had cynically predicted.
9: I didn't know whether I should laugh or cry the laugh that that we had pulled off that this hoax had worked great, but also to to cry at the uh, taste of America that we had exposed.
7: It was a feeling we all shared from time to time. This was how Mike McGrady ended his 1970 memoir. The fun seemed to vanish. Even with the first wild thought that the stunt might work, there was the fear that, yes, the stunt just might work. Later, as it all came to pass, there were always counter-emotions, unexpected misgivings that took the edge off elation. It was too easy. It all went too smoothly. America. You sit there, you plump beauty, still buying neckties from sidewalk sharpies, still guessing which walnut shell contains the pea, still praying along with Elmer Gantry. America, sometimes I worry about you.
4: this merry-go-round Gotta get off Gonna get Need to get on Where I'm
0: bound That story was produced by Studio 360's Sam Kim. Since we first aired it in 2017, Stan Green and Robert Mayer have died. Greg Tannen read from Mike McGrady's memoir, Stranger Than Naked, and Lorraine Mattox read the excerpts from Naked Came the Stranger.
5: He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. (laughs) It's hot in here.
6: Coming up... I think I've seen Love Actually 24, 25 times. Why, the seasonal rom-com everyone loves to hate is one screenwriter's go-to. The film itself is an extraordinary kind of melding of a commercial, a musical, and a romantic comedy. And to be able to segue from one emotion into a completely different emotion, it requires balls, really. The case in favor of love, actually. That's next on Studio 360.
7: Studio
0: 360. As the holiday season descends on us, I want to talk about a Christmas movie that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. People say it's glib and it's manipulative and even though it's a rom-com, they say it's not really that romantic or comedic but one of our listeners respectfully disagrees.
6: My name is Oliver Butcher. I'm a screenwriter. And I've lived and worked on the West Coast for 25 years now. And my guilty pleasure is the movie Love Actually, written and directed by Richard Curtis. The Love Actually is about 10 different interrelated, intertwining stories concerning love in all of its various permutations and it follows it through the five weeks prior to christmas climaxing on christmas eve and with a postscript one month after
4: so what's this big news then we've been given our parts in the nativity play (gasps) and i'm the lobster the lobster yeah in the nativity play
3: yeah first lobster
6: i think i've seen love actually 24 25 times I mean, I mean, the irony is I do not own myself Love Actually on DVD. I think that's a measure of my guilt, by the way. Obviously, I do feel guilty because otherwise I would own it. You know, you don't want people to think you're feeble-minded. I think one of the reasons why Love Actually rouses such hostility is that it occupies a world that has absolutely no analogues in real life. The characters, what they do, what they say, how they behave. People just don't behave like this in real life. Anything to put off actually running the country. Um, Notably, the tousled prime minister in the form of um, Hugh Grant. This is Terence. He's in charge. Good morning, sir. Uh, Good morning. I had an uncle called Terence once. Hated him. I think he was a pervert. But I very much like the look of you. (laughs) And then there are other aspects to the movie which probably wouldn't pass muster these days, like the fact that at least three of the storylines are about male employers forming relationships with female employees. And likewise, Liam Neeson has this really inappropriately sexual banter with his 11-year-old stepson. Anybody overhearing that would call child services.
7: By the way, I feel bad. I never asked you how
0: your love life is going.
6: Uh-huh. No, as you know,
3: that was a done deal long ago. Unless, of course, Claudia
6: Schiffer called, in which case I want you out of the house straight away, you wee motherless mongrel. He's 11 and his mother's just died.
2: Oh,
6: No, no. We all want to have sex in every room, including yours. And his dad's making jokes about having sex with Claudia Schiffer in every room of the house. I mean, it's not what you would say to your recently bereaved 11-year-old stepson. It just sort of isn't. So I guess my point is that the universe of love, actually, is not a universe that exists in any recognizable platonic form. It just doesn't. It doesn't doesn't bear any resemblance to life whatsoever. But to say that, I think, is entirely missing the point of the film. It's extremely well constructed. None of the storylines, despite the fact there are ten of them, ever really flagged. I think the scene which sort of exemplifies the kind of level of writing and directing skills is the scene where Laura Linney almost consummates her relationship with the hot designer Carl. And there's that moment where they're at the office party, and then that Nora Jones song Turn Me On is cued. I'm
2: just sitting here. Waiting.
6: And it it bleeds brilliantly over from the party into getting back to her apartment. Well, then... Then you get through the front door of her apartment and then there is this brilliant moment where she says... Just,
5: um, would you excuse me for one second?
6: Sure. uh... And she just darts round the corner. So there's a wall separating her from Carl, who's at the head of the stairs. And she does this little fist-clenching dance of glee that she's actually got him back there. And it's very, that was a wonderful moment. It's like there's almost a de facto split screen there just provided by the scenery wall. Um, and then she gets she, she go, rushes upstairs. She's tidying her bedroom, which is like, that's a very real thing. You know, she's tidying the mess in her bedroom. And then Carl comes up there, and then you have this very kind of well-done sort of awkward disrobing scene between the two of them.
4: Just tug it. Okay. Uh,
6: leading into what you are pretty sure is going to be the sum of all uh, all Laura Linney's joys in the movie.
9: You're beautiful.
6: But then of course the phone rings. And then for the first time in the movie, yes, when I, she banters, she talks to her brother.
4: I, I'm not quite sure it's going to be possible to get the Pope on the phone tonight. But.
6: You realise that she's talking to somebody who is yes. very disturbed.
4: Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure he's, he's very good at exorcism. But
6: Then she explains to the first time, to Carl and to the audience, that, that she has a brother who's in the mental facility. Um, and then she and Carl try to pick up where they left off and the brother calls again, and she leaves. And so in the, in the course of about six minutes, the tone has completely shifted. It goes from charming to being awkwardly comedic to being real, and then suddenly, boof! And you know that she has to go. The film itself is an extraordinary kind of melding of a commercial, a musical, and a romantic comedy, and I think that... That tends to be a commercials director's skill to be able to segue from one emotion into a completely different emotion uh, boldly and quickly. And I would say that that's the technique at play here, that it requires balls, really. It's interesting that on Netflix, in the kind of digest of the film, I think they called it a treatise on love, and I think it is. I mean, you know, it's not going to win a PhD, but it's it's definitely a treatise on love. Love, love, love. I think what it is, is a great pop song as opposed to a meaningful rock song. And I think that's the key to its success, that it's both charmingly innocent on the one hand and incredibly sophisticatedly written and directed and edited and scored on the other. No, it's nothing you can do can be done Yeah sure it it tugs your heartstrings it's manipulative but if that's manipulation bring it on I mean I think that it's 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 just what cinema's all about It's easy no, Nothing you can make that can't be made No one you can save that can't be saved yeah. no, Nothing you can do
0: that story was produced by Krista Ripple. All you
6: need
1: is love.
0: And by the way, I like love actually as well. And until we did that story, I didn't know I was supposed to feel bad about that. So, what's something you like that's unpopular? Or is just really surprising that somebody like you liked something like that. That is your guilty pleasure. Tell us about it in an email or voice memo and send it to incoming at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate, and our production team is
5: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
3: Andrew Adam Newman.
5: Sandra Lopez Monsalve.
0: Evan Chung.
5: Lauren Hansen.
3: Sam
0: Kim,
9: Zoe Saunders,
0: Tommy Bazarian,
9: Morgan Flannery,
0: and I am Kurt Anderson.
9: He said we'll make a lot of money. I said
0: we're not going to make any money,
9: but I thought we'd have a lot of fun. Thanks very much for listening. P
0: R
7: I Public Radio
0: International. Next time on Studio 360... Dickie is that kind of boy that you fall in love with before you realize you shouldn't. The longing for status, beauty, and comfort turns deadly. And when Ripley lashes out at him, it's not that you want him to die, but you're ready for some kind of justice. Twisted reinvention in Patricia Highsmith's Ripley trilogy. An American icon, next time on Studio 360.